also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the, power, by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of, God, of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Good morning again. Just want to take a moment to introduce our, our pastor and preacher for today. Uh, someone who doesn't need introducing in our midst, he's been around. But for, for those of you who are new, Pastor Erwin Entz is one of the pastors in our Grace DC network. Uh, he's also the director for the Institute of Cross-Cultural Mission. And recently, uh, he was chosen to be the moderator of our denomination General Assembly. So we are delighted to have our brother with us today and for the weeks following, actually, he's going to lead us through the book of Hebrews, focusing on selected passages. But for now, I just want to bring you on up, Erwin, to come and bless us through the word of God. We need it. We're dependent on him. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Grace Meridian Hill. It is a joy to be with you this morning and for the opportunity to stand in this pulpit and bring God's word to you, as Pastor Yancey said from a letter to the Hebrews over these next five weeks. I want to spend our time focused on this overarching theme, a simple a four-letter theme, or four-word theme, I should say, uh, for us this month, in need of endurance. In need of endurance is what I want to focus on this month of July as we deal with, we need some endurance to deal with this summer heat, amen? In need of endurance. I want to talk this morning out of this first chapter of the book of Hebrews on this Topic. This is our sermon topic this morning, the storm 
before the calm. The storm before the calm. And here it is, the point of the whole message is that the glorious, eternal, unchanging, divine Son of God, Jesus, must be the anchor in life for our souls. That the eternal, divine, glorious, unchanging Son of God, Jesus, must be the anchor in life for our souls. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, we bow before your throne of grace this morning with hearts that are thankful, thankful for your word. This word, as the Bible tells us, that is not dead, but that is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword that pierces to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judging the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And as we've already sung this morning in our worship, all of us in here are naked and exposed to you, the one to whom we must all give account. And so would you, Lord, be pleased to, through the preaching of your word, meet us where we are and give us what we need. Would you bless us, Lord, if we need faith to receive that gift from you? If we need to be corrected, Lord, would you be merciful to us and correct us? If we need to be encouraged, oh God, would you encourage us that we would be people who live not for our glory, but for the glory of our Savior and King, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen, amen and amen. Well, I am uh, a self-proclaimed CrossFit fanatic. I hear at least one person who knows what I'm talking about. As we have transitioned into D.C. now, you know, living here in the city, I'm in search of a new CrossFit gym. And for those of you who are not familiar with CrossFit, it is a, a workout uh, methodology. Some might say religion and cult as well. <laughs> that is described as constantly varied functional movements performed at high intensity. And this week, I did a workout at District CrossFit in my gym search, and we did a workout uh, this week titled Isabel. Isabel is one of the benchmark CrossFit workouts. There are several of these benchmark, workout, benchmark workouts that CrossFit has. They are simply known as uh, the girls. They each have female names. There's Annie and Barbara. Cindy and Diane, there's Elizabeth and Fran and Grace and Helen and Jackie and Linda and Mary and Nancy. Talk to any CrossFitter and you name one of these workouts and they will know what you are talking about. Why female names for these benchmark workouts? Well, it actually doesn't have a whole heck of a lot to do with gender. These workouts are actually named after hurricanes. 
CrossFit decided to follow the pattern of the National Weather Service that after 1953 started to use female names for storms uh, to, because they wanted short and distinctive uh, given names that made it easier and quicker for communication. And the founder of CrossFit, Gray Glassman, wrote, this convenience and logic inspired our granting a special group of workouts women's names. But anything that leaves you flat on your back and incapacitated only to lure you back for more at a later date certainly deserves naming. These workouts are just like hurricanes. There's a calm before the storm. You're feeling fine, talking with your fellow gym members and the coach is taking you through a nice warm-up to get you ready to, for the workout, and then she starts the timer, counting down the start of the workout. She says, 10 seconds, and the next thing you hear is her saying, 3, 2, 1, go, and all hell breaks loose. At a certain point in a workout, you feel as though you might actually die. If you can think at all, you are thinking to yourself, why am I here doing this voluntarily? <laughs> I had one uh, trainer who said to me, she said to me early in my crossfitting days during the workout, she said, listen, don't worry, you will pass out before you die, so just keep going. <laughs> workout ends and you wonder, you actually do wonder, am I dead? Am I dead? The devastation in the gym is evident as people are lying on the floor all over the place, making what we call sweat angels on the floor, these imprints of your body that is just sweat. Then after this storm passes, there's chaos. <laughs> That's what actually happens in a hurricane, right? There's calm and then there is a realization that the storm has hit and that you are no longer in control. And then after the storm passes, there's chaos, there's devastation all the way around. Well, what I want to do actually this morning is not talk to you about CrossFit, but actually put before you the case that with Jesus is actually the opposite. What we find out about following Jesus is that there is an opposite pattern. It is the, the storm before the calm. I want to put these three things in reverse order to you this morning. I want to talk about chaos, control, and calm from our text. Chaos, control, and calm. There is perhaps no other chapter in the Bible that hits us so strongly with the divinity of Jesus Christ than this first chapter of the letter to the Hebrews. You cannot read this chapter and say that the Bible declares Jesus to simply be a mere prophet. No, he is God. We don't know for sure who the author of this letter was, but I simply refer to him as the pastor because this letter is actually a long sermon. At the end of this message, he says to them in chapter 13, verse 22, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. And what we find if we read through chapter 11 is that he actually is doing some hooping as he preaches. What I love about the pastor is that he's not 
setting forth the divine nature of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as an idea that is disconnected from the realities of life. He's not just giving them head and doctrinal knowledge. All of this rich theology about Jesus Christ is not given in a vacuum. It is the epitome of theology applied to life. Jesus' being God is important because the world is full of chaos. Verses 10 to 12, he quotes from Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27. You heard it read, telling us that God the Father says to God the Son, and you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. Why is he quoting from the 102nd Psalm to these Hebrews? If you look at Psalm 102, the heading from the Hebrew text is this, a prayer of one afflicted when he is faint and pours out his complaint to the Lord. The psalmist there is in the midst of a storm. He is overwhelmed by the chaos of his world. His world has just been rocked. And what's turned the world upside down for the psalmist in Psalm 102 is that Jerusalem has been destroyed. The temple is in ruins. The temple was supposed to be the place where God made his name to dwell in the midst of the people. It was evidence that the Lord was with his people. But now the thing that he thought was the most secure and stable was gone. The Babylonians have crushed them and taken them into exile. This analogy that I'm going to give falls a little bit short, but I think it helps us to see the point. When I was young, my father used to uh, work in the World Trade Center in Lower uh, Manhattan, and he usually took the train home at the end of the day, but every so often, my mother would drive my sister and I uh, from Brooklyn to, to Manhattan to pick him up from work. And I can remember as a little boy, you know, being out there uh, parked in front of the World Trade Center trying to, trying to look up and stretch my neck and, and see the top of the buildings. And as hard as I strained my neck looking out the window, I couldn't see the top. I was amazed at, at, at those buildings and how large they were. And they were in my mind permanent fixtures in New York City. The pictures that represented New York City almost always included the Twin Towers, and obviously they were not the permanent fixtures I thought that they were, right? The city was thrown into distress when the towers fell on 9-11, and this distress that was on the faces of New Yorkers on that day when the towers fell gets at the distress of the psalmist when he says, for my days pass away like smoke and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is struck down like grass and has withered. I forget to eat my bread because of my loud groaning. My bones cling to my flesh. But there's a turning point in that psalm. In verse 12 of Psalm 102, the psalmist says, but you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. 
You are remembered throughout all generations in the midst of the chaos that is around him. What he realizes is that the only stable, the only unchanging reality is that the Lord is enthroned forever. That is the message that the pastor is communicating to the Hebrews here in chapter 1. The distress you feel is very real, but the one who walked the streets of Jerusalem and said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, is none other than the Lord your God. He is telling them that Jesus is the very one who laid the foundations of the world in the beginning, the very one who created the heavens. Those created things will wear out and be rolled up like an old garment and be changed, but the Lord continues forever. He is the same, and his years have no end. And the chaos is having a particular impact on the recipients of this letter. Their pastor is writing to them because they are in danger. They are in danger of drifting away from the faith that they have in Jesus Christ because of the persecution that they're under for following Jesus. They want to release from the, the pressure. Following Jesus is, 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 is turning out to be more costly than they anticipated. And the question that they're asking is, is it worth it? Isn't there an easier way to be right with God? We don't want to forget about God. We just want less suffering. Maybe folk will like us more. Maybe they'll stop treating us so badly if we make some slight modifications to what it means to be a Christian. Then folks will be okay with this gospel we're trying to preach and live, and they'll be okay with us. They're in a dangerous position. They have need of endurance. They are at, if you will, the height of the workout when the pressure is the most intense, and they want to quit, but they need to endure. The pastor will say to them in chapter 10 of this letter, verses 35 and 36, Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. What's interesting, however, is how he begins to address their concerns in the middle of the chaos. He wants them to endure, not to give up. But he doesn't start out this letter in his sermon by saying to them, hold on, keep the faith, don't be discouraged, keep pressing on. These are things that he's going to say to them uh, later in the, in the letter, but his starting point in these very beginning verses is with the unrivaled glory, majesty, and authority of the Son of God. If they're going to endure in life, particularly as Christians, what has to be in view is how glorious Jesus is. No encouragement to keep the faith is going to have any teeth unless we are gripped by the incomparable glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no mistake about it, following Jesus is costly. You don't do anybody any favors by 
presenting the Christian life as one of ease and, and comfort unless you and I are captivated by, unless we are captured by, unless our hearts is beating to the rhythm of the grandeur and the bigness and the glory of Jesus, you'll never think that being a Christian is worth it. The only way to endure the chaos is to know that Jesus is in control. The punch that he packs in the first four verses of this passage is that Jesus is the glorious prophet, Jesus is the glorious priest, and Jesus is the glorious king. This letter begins, if you notice, almost like, almost like a Star Wars movie, right? You know, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. But this is no sci-fi tale, right? The first thing he wants to remind us of is that God has spoken. He says, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets at various points and times in history and in different ways. God raised up and anointed prophets to declare his word with authority. Abraham and Moses and Samuel and Elijah and Elisha and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and Joel and, and Hosea and Amos and on and on for centuries, God spoke to his people through the prophets always to direct them to himself. It was always so that they would know what was necessary for them to live in a way that honors and glorifies him. When he spoke, he said all that he wanted to say. He didn't leave out anything that was necessary. God was not silent, but we're often deaf. He spoke that we would know and understand who he is, but we're hard of hearing. And here's the deal. As glorious as the word that was spoken through the prophets was, it was very diverse and fragmented because the prophets were many in number, but a change took place when Jesus came on the scene. The pastor says that in these last days, uh, God has spoken to us by the Son, by the unique and the only Son, when God God the Son took on human flesh and was born of a woman born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. Jesus' word became the final, the complete, and the full word of God. That's why he says in the first verse of chapter 2, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. If the words the various prophets was glorious and authoritative how much more glorious is the unitary message given to us by Jesus Christ God's word to us in Jesus Christ has been spoken fully and finally we have what the fathers of the faith did not have the full complete and final word of God in Jesus in other words God has upped the ante the son is far superior to the prophets. This first verse sets the tone and theme of the whole letter. Jesus is supreme over everything that came before him. Prophets and priests and kings, it all pointed toward him. He is the full and final word of God. He's not just one of the prophets. He's the heir of all things. 
He has an inheritance, and in his, his inheritance is the whole world, the whole creation, not just people, but he claim, came to lay claim on all of it. He came to lay claim on the entire world as his own possession because he is the one through whom the world was created. He is the one appointed heir of everything. See, you and I, we might hope to have some wealthy benefactor somewhere who leaves us an inheritance so we can be rich, but no benefactor could have leave us an inheritance like the one Jesus has. His inheritance is a whole deal including you and I. He is the glorious radiance and the exact imprint of God's essence. He is God and he makes the glory of God visible to us. And you almost have to ask after this description, how could the description get any better? What more could you say to describe how glorious Jesus is? But then you read the second part of verse 3 when it says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. In five words in the Greek text and eight words in our English translation, he lets us know that Jesus is not only the glorious prophet, he's also the glorious priest. After making purification for sins, he sat down. Those eight words, the pastor describes the whole of Jesus' work. He is providing in those words a kind of check your attitude time. You can't afford, in other words, he's saying to them and to us, you can't afford to ignore the holiness of God. You can't afford to think that you'll be okay as long as you're just a decent person. You need a right view of God, and you need a right view of yourself. God is holy, and we are not. If you're going to know him, if you and I are going to know him, he has to provide a way for that to happen. What he did in the Old Testament is provide a line of priests whose daily ministry was to atone for their own sins and for the sins of the people by sacrificing lambs and bulls and goats. It was a gory and a gruesome scene. Blood flowed in the tabernacle in Israel every day. That's how seriously God takes sin. The pastor reminds them in chapter 9, verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Every day, blood was shed in the tabernacle so that the people would not be consumed. God's punishment for sin fell on lambs and bulls and goats. But then the pastor says to them again in chapter 10 and verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The blood of bulls and goats can never fully, finally, and completely take care of the problem of human sin. So the same sacrifices had to be offered continually over and over and over again, day after day after day. But when the one who is the radiance of the glory of God came, he came as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus came as the unblemished, spotless Lamb of God. He came both as a sacrificial offering and as the offerer. 
He is the great high priest who offered himself as the only one who could crush sin. And he was being, as he was being beaten, as he was being whipped, as the the only one who could crush sin had blood flowing from his heads, his hands, and his feet. Purification was being made for the sins of everyone who puts their trust in him. It's as that old hymn writer said, see From his head, his hands, and his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? Jesus made final and complete purification for sins. How do we know that it's final and complete? The pastor wants us to know. How do we know that it's final and complete? Why? Because do you know what was missing in the tabernacle? Do you know what was missing in the tabernacle when the priests went in to offer the blood of atonement uh, day after day, year after year? There was no chair. There was no place for them to sit down because there was no rest. But when Jesus made purification for sins, the Bible says that he took his seat. He sat down. The work was finished. There no longer remains any need for any other sacrifice for sin. Let me ask you this question this morning. Are you trying to clean yourself up? Are you trying to do your own cleansing of yourself? Are you trying to get yourself together before you come to God? Instead of giving yourself over to God with all of your mess. Listen, if that's what you are doing, what you are actually doing in your actions is spitting in God's face. You are saying, God, I got this myself. I know what I'm doing. I say to you in the strongest way possible, stop it. Stop it. Stop spitting in God's face. The pastor is showing them that Jesus is the glorious priest because they are being tempted uh, to take matters into their own hands. They're being tempted to make up their own way of salvation and of right living. The message is that Jesus is the only one who can make the impure pure. There is no other way than throwing yourself at his feet. That's the best place to find yourself, not because Jesus is simply the glorious prophet and the merciful high priest, but he's also our great and glorious king. The fact that he sat down tells us not only that he completed his work of purification for sins, but he's also the supreme king and judge, for he sat down, the Bible says, not at any old place, but he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He completed his work and he was restored to his rightful position in heaven as king of kings and Lord of lords, as the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. I don't know if you're reading this passage and you're hearing him, Jesus being described, all this talk about angels. Jesus is described, he's got a name more excellent than theirs. And uh, to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. All this talk about angels, are you wondering, like, Why is the writer comparing Jesus to angels? Why is he declaring that Jesus is far superior to the angels? 
As one commentator put it, I think rightly, he says it, it follows that those to whom this letter was sent were entertaining or at least being encouraged to entertain, teaching that elevated angels or particular angels to a position which rivaled that of Jesus Christ himself. In other words, the recipients of this letter, they held a view that in the last days, right, the, the pastor says in these last days he's spoken to us uh, by his son, right? Uh, and and these, these folks to whom they, the, this letter was written, they, they had this, this view that in the last days there'd be a hierarchical structure of two messianic figures. One would be kingly and the other uh, would be uh, priestly, a, a kingly messiah who would be subordinate to a priestly messiah and both of them would be subordinate to the archangel Michael. And the pastor let him know, y'all got this thing twisted. Jesus got a better name than any angel, and that name is Son. He's the only one y'all need to be looking for. He's not only the glorious messianic priest. He's the glorious messianic king. To which of the angels did God ever say, you're my son. Today I've begotten you. Or of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. The son rules. The son is king. Listen, you have to know. In every fiber of your being, you have to know in your bones that Jesus is in control as the glorious prophet, priest, and king if you're going to endure the chaos of this world. We live, right? We live in a divided and polarized nation. Divided and polarized politically, socioeconomically, Racially and on and on, we can make a seemingly endless list uh, in quoting from Psalm 45, 6 to 7, right? The, the, the pastor says, a psalm, the, the son loves righteousness and hates wickedness. Therefore, he is anointed by God with the oil uh, of gladness. And we ask, when will we see righteousness and justice rule the day? Where is the world going? The optimist says things are getting better as technology advances and we get new laws. We're improving the lives of people. The pessimist says everything is going to hell in a handbasket. Well, here's where the world is going. It's going to the place where every knee will bow to Jesus. Creation is not under the authority of angels. It's not under the authority of any president or king. It is under the son's authority. The angels don't sit at the father's right hand or have their enemies as a footstool. Our issue becomes we don't yet see it with our eyes. And whatever we can't see and hear and touch and taste and smell, we doubt. That's why what he says in the last verse of this chapter, verse 14, is so encouraging. I'm convinced that he says it not just to correct their bad theology, but to encourage them with the truth 
that there's a calm that comes after the storm, right? In Jesus, there's a day coming when God, as Revelation 21.4 says, will wipe away every tear from all faces and death shall be no more. There'll be no more mourning or crying or pain anymore. The former things have passed away, but there's not only a calm that comes after the storm, but there's a calm that comes in the storm for the people of God right now so he says to them about the angels are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation the angels these glorious creatures who worship Jesus these powerful spiritual creatures who invoke terror in the hearts of people when they come on the scene the pastor says that God sends them out to minister on the behalf of those who are to inherit salvation the angels can't be compared to Jesus they're under his authority they do his will here's his will he sends them to help those who follow him Give you a perfect example of this from the scripture, 2 Kings 6. The prophet Elisha would warn the king of Israel where the, that the, where the Syrians were setting up their camp to attack him. And the king of Syria decided that he had had enough of Elisha's meddling. And he found out where Elisha was staying in Dothan. And the Bible says he sent his horses and chariots and a great army. And they came out by night and surrounded the city. And when Elisha's servant got up in the morning and saw the army surrounding the city, he got scared and he said to Elisha what are we going to do the servant was petrified but Elisha was calm Elisha says in verse 16 of of 2nd Kings 6 he said do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them and Elisha prayed the Bible said and said oh Lord please open his eyes that he may see So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, the Bible said, and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Because Elisha belonged to the Lord, he understood that nothing in this creative world was more powerful than his God. Even the angels of God were at God's disposal to come and help him. Verse 14 in our text is a question. Are not they all ministering spirits sent out to to serve uh, for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Well, the answer to the question is supposed to be yes. That's what they are. Notice this. We're told in verse 2 that the son is the heir of all things. We're told in verse number four that he has inherited a name that is more excellent than that of the angels. And now we are told that the angels were sent to minister on behalf of those who are to inherit salvation. He uses the word inherit on purpose. He wants them to be linked intimately with the son and understand, emphasize God's intentions for them. Jesus is seated in glory right now. He is reigning and he is ruling right now, today. But that doesn't always seem to be the case. It seems like everything but the Son of God is in control often. But just like the Father's plan was for the Son to do his work and take his rightful place on the throne coming into his inheritance, it is the gift.
guaranteed plan of the Father and the Son to bring every single solitary Christian into the full inheritance of eternal life with them in glory. So what does he do? He gives us strength to calmly endure through the chaos of the storms. Do you see why he says to them, as I quoted earlier, you have need of endurance. Do not throw away your confidence. It has great reward. You have need of endurance. Don't just look to the angels as these, these creatures that float around in heaven, flying around with some wings and waiting for the day you get to be on a cloud with them plucking some heart. That ain't what they doing. You know, like that, that meme, be calm and carry on. He's saying, listen, be calm in the storm. Be calm in the storm because you ain't by yourself. You're not fighting this by yourself. I know it seems like all hell might be breaking around, uh, out around you and, and even within you in the reality of the chaos of life, but God is with you and you know he's with you because he sends his angels to serve you. Listen, you have the Son of God. You're a privileged person. If you have Jesus the Son as your King, you are privileged. The very angels minister on your behalf. You can't see them, but they are ministering on your behalf. Jesus is sending them out to keep you strong in the faith. He is just like they did for him when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. They came and they ministered to him in his moment of trial and grief. Guess what? He sends them to do the same thing for you. Don't treat this salvation lightly. Have you found calm in the storm? Have you found the calm of Jesus in the storm? He, brothers and sisters, is the only sure anchor. He's the only one that can keep us in the fight, in the fray, enduring faithfully to the end. Would you pray with me? Oh God, we have need of endurance. Our flesh, our hearts, our desires, they fail us so regularly try to muster up the strength on our own to walk with you. Lord, help us to know that you provide the strength you command. You send your angels to serve your people. Help us to live in this confidence. Make us people who are calm in the middle of the storm because we have Jesus Christ, our glorious prophet, our glorious priest, and our glorious king. And we ask it in his name. Amen. 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 Would you stand and sing our song of response?